What happened in the last 40 years, or 40, 50 years for us to double our rate of obesity? I mean, there had to have been huge changes in the way we live our lives. More Canadians are obese than ever before. But is that necessarily a bad thing? I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. You know, the numbers are pretty shocking. 64% of Canadians qualify as overweight or obese. These numbers are high and in some cases trending upward, despite so much public awareness about how exercise and healthy eating is good for us. So to get to the bottom of this trend, Global News released a special report that's all about Canadian health. And on that team of reporters is Leslie Young. I'm Leslie Young. I'm the senior national online journalist for health with Global News. What exactly is obesity? How do we define that? So it's uh, it's an estimate based on your BMI. It's a measurement where they take your, your height and your weight and work out a, a ratio, essentially. So when we look online, your body mass index score, your BMI, underweight mm-hmm. is anything below a score of 18.5. Normal weight is 18.5 to 24.9. Overweight, 25 to 29.9, and then obese is a body mass index of 30 or greater. So what percentage of Canadians are at a body mass index, a BMI of 30 or greater? In 2014, that was 28% of Canadian adults. Wow, that seems really high. It does. (laughs) I'm shocked. You know, we look at other countries like the U.S. and we tend to say they're obese, but we're not as bad here in Canada. But it sounds like from what you're saying, we are as bad. Yeah, we're a little better, but we're not that much better. And we're pretty middle of the road, I think, for Western developed countries. The number of obese children and teens is now 10 times higher than it was 40 years ago. New research published in JAMA Internal Medicine finds more than two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese. In 2015, two-thirds of adults in England were classed as being overweight or obese, with one in four adults classed as obese. Research shows an estimated 74 million boys and 50 million girls are obese worldwide. What happened in the last 40 years, 40, 50 years for us to double our rate of obesity? I mean, there had to have been huge changes in the way we live our lives. The number of obese children and teens is now 10 times higher than it was 40 years ago due to poor nutrition and lack of exercise. The problem is more than just physical. It seems like there are a whole bunch of different factors that are contributing to this. The chief public health officer of Canada told me we've engineered exercise out of our lives. So we've done things like make our neighborhoods very car centric, for example. So we spend a lot of time in the car. We don't walk from place to place as we do our errands or we spend a lot more time sitting and at desk jobs than we used to in the past. So a lot of these things, they all, all these little changes kind of contribute to this overall, uh, overall problem. Hmm, that's a really interesting phrase that we've engineered fitness or engineered health out of our lives. It's a really interesting way to put it. 
I thought so too. <laughs> That's why I remembered it off the top of my head. It really stood out to me. Canada's chief public health officer, who Leslie was speaking with, Dr. Teresa Tam, she elaborated on how neighborhoods can be designed to our health advantage or disadvantage. So ideally, um, you know, you get up in the morning, you, you, you wake up, you get out the front door. What you need is a really uh, easy access um, to get somewhere, usually, and to do grocery shopping uh, or to, to um, have recreational activity. So um, as you walk out the front door, one of the main features is do you have a well-maintained pavement, for example, so that people can uh, walk easily. Um, increasing the number of intersections help. So if you have very long blocks, it takes forever to get to the next intersection to cross the road you're less likely to want to walk and move around. So well-connected streets, that's easy for people to uh, cross over to get to where they need to get to is actually uh, a really great feature. But if there's one thing that can be said about the cause of obesity, it's not because we don't know better. It's not a lack of information. I mean, we all know how, what foods are healthy and what foods aren't, and you know that we should all get some exercise. And that, for whatever reason, isn't enough, just knowing this. Yeah, that's really true, isn't it? Because we know that we should be eating more vegetables and you know, less processed foods, less carbohydrates or whatever the latest diet or trend says. We know what are healthy foods and we know what aren't healthy foods. We know that exercise is good for our health. But why do we as humans not follow those guidelines when we know that those guidelines exist? I honestly don't know, but uh, it, we've been trying, uh, you know, the public health efforts have been trying for decades. It's still, uh, we're still making these choices. So a lot of the people I spoke to said, we need to try a different approach rather than just telling people that they should exercise a bit more or eat a bit more vegetables. If there's one thing that you would take away from this whole report that you've done, what would that be? It would be that something in our society has just really changed over the last few decades that we have these problems with weight, we have these problems with diet, and it's really contributing to our poor health. And we need to, I guess, try and figure out how to solve this problem. And nobody really quite has that answer yet. Leslie, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been really interesting. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. So what did you think about that conversation with Leslie? Did you hear anything in there that surprised you? Yes, obesity rates are somewhat shocking. However, did it surprise you to hear that there was a link or an assumed link between health and weight? Most people would probably say no. That's not too surprising. But not everyone agrees. Coming up later in this episode. So if we're equating quote-unquote obesity with death or with a world as a worldwide public health epidemic, it's not quite factually true to say that that is also increasing mortality rates because it's not. People are living longer than ever before. 
You're listening to This Is Why, a global news radio show and podcast. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts now. In the first part of this episode, we spoke with a reporter about the growing rate of obesity in Canada and the effects that has on our health. Report out today says one out of 10 people on Earth is obese, which of course can lead to life-threatening diseases. Excess weight accounted for 4 million deaths worldwide, 70% from cardiovascular disease. The health effects include different types of chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, stroke, many different cancers are social psychological problems for the children themselves more stigmatism more bullying hypertension high cholesterol uh, heart disease cancer and diabetes obesity is set to overtake smoking as the leading preventable cause of cancer in women now i want to introduce you to layla cameron she's a phd student and she's a fat advocate layla When you hear that obesity is on the rise, how do you react to that? Is that something that you think is a negative or? I think it's infuriating because the media does a very, I mean, our job as journalists is to simplify information for the public. However, I think we oversimplify information about fatness. And so when we say simple statements like obesity is on the rise, we're neglecting to acknowledge that throughout the entire world, people are also living longer than ever before in history. People are also taller than ever before in history. And so if we're equating quote unquote obesity with death or with a world as a worldwide public health epidemic, it's not quite factually true to say that that is also increasing mortality rates because it's not. People are living longer than ever before. Leila, you're a fat advocate. When did you first get involved in this kind of advocacy? How old were you? Um, It probably wasn't until I was about 14 and I competed in a modeling contest with Seventeen Magazine that I began to sort of think that perhaps my body was okay or even desirable um, to some people because I think growing up fat and having always been fat, that definitely impacted my sense of self. Um, and made it very hard to figure out how I was going to be moving through the world. And I think that having sort of had that introduction in the fashion industry, I was much more comfortable with terms like plus size until I was about 22. And it was around that age where I started to learn more about other fat activists and began reading literature from fat studies. And I decided then that I identified as fat Um, Fat is a much more political identity than terms like plus size or voluptuous or curvy um, because identifying as fat doesn't try to mask what you are to make you more like palatable to the general public. I think that we call ourselves things like plus size when we want other people to be comfortable with our fat bodies. But that term sort of insinuates that we exist like outside of a normal range or that we aren't a normal size when in fact, you know, fat people are the average for most Western countries. When you were in that modeling competition, Mm. how did it go for you? I'm surprised that you said that coming out of that, you felt more confident because, you know, my initial thought would have been that, you know, you'd go into this competition and then feel compared to all of these other women and become body self-conscious. But it sounds like it had the opposite effect. 
Totally. I was um, the only quote unquote plus size girl um, in the competition. And so what, I mean, it was pretty barbaric. They had 17 girls pick from all over North America and our pictures were put on their website. And every week, one of us had an X crossed off on our faces, on our photo. Um, and people from around the world could vote for us. And every week at like lunchtime on a Friday, my mom would call me while I was at school and tell me if I was still in the running or not. And every week I was. So the top five, um, contestants who were left were all flown to New York and I was one of them. Um, and when I went, it, it was interesting, definitely being the only fat one. I think that it was very uncomfortable because, you know, we were being taken to meetings with different executives and people from the Ford modeling agency to some of the best restaurants in New York city. And none of the other contestants would eat their meals. Um, meanwhile, you know, my, I took my dad with me as my chaperone and he would sort of look at me and be like, you're probably never going to be in this restaurant again. So eat up, like enjoy yourself. (laughs) Um, so, you know, we did. And I think that, you know, I've always had a very supportive family and I was in that contest because of my size. I was sort of representing the average, um, you know, North American woman, Um, and so I kind of took that role very seriously. Um, I remember under your photo on the website, they had a quote from the essay that you had submitted to be considered. And my quote said something like your magazine is supposed to be for the all American girl, but the all American girl is a size 12 and none of those girls are in your magazine. So I think I kind of had to stand by what I said, um, when they actually brought me to New York and I had to go through that process. And have you thought about that competition a lot as you moved forward in life and forward with advocacy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the fashion industry in and of itself is obviously very problematic. I didn't end up pursuing a modeling career because I had a very hard time uh, reconciling my identity as a political activist with some of the things you would be required to do. So, For example, if you're trying to build a modeling career, you can't really say no to a job if you don't agree with the politics of the company that's trying to hire you. Right. So for me, I had to kind of abandon that dream. Now, as I've gotten older, I think that there's sort of a middle ground because at the end of the day, you know, fat people need clothes to wear. We don't exist outside of capitalism. So it is important that we have industries that serve, you know, people like me. Um, but at that time, I mean, I was 14, I was learning about politics and I think I was like a bit, thought I was a bit of an anarchist and figured it would be very hypocritical of me to then work in the fashion industry (laughs) at that time. Hey, I want to ask you about, um, something you were talking about earlier too, and that's using the word fat because, you know, here I am trying to, I guess, train that word out of my vocabulary, thinking that that's, you know, a, a crude or offensive thing to say. But on the other hand, you're going, no, 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 it's more empowering or more literal, I suppose. Totally. Um, there's a fat studies scholar and activist named Marilyn Wen who really summarizes that quite nicely. Um, she talks a lot about how fatness is can be two things. One, it's an adjective. So just like someone could identify me as being tall, they could also identify me as being fat. And while that is a value-laden term more so than being tall, it shouldn't be that it is just an adjective or a descriptor. But secondly, that it's a political identity. And so to identify as fat is to sort of try to reclaim that term or that adjective and ascribe it with more positive characteristics. 
Um, I think that our fear of fat and people's rejection of the word uh, only sort of perpetuates the body shame and different oppressive or discriminatory experiences that fat people have. Um, And I think that that uncomfort that people feel when it comes to the word fat is very important and very powerful because there's a lot that can be revealed when we explore those feelings of being uncomfortable. So when I think of marketing, you know, right now we see so many stores that say, oh, this is a a woman's clothing in plus size. For you to use the term fat is one thing, but for a company to use it, would that also be socially acceptable or something that you'd like to see? I would love to see it, but I think that I don't see it because it's not socially acceptable. I think that in mainstream communities or industries, um, there isn't an awareness of the fat activist movement or the efforts to reclaim that word. And so when you're a for-profit business, you need to um, encourage people to come into your store. Um, so it's just not a term that that uh, a business would use. I would love to see that happen. Um, because I think that, again, like I said, like those terms like plus size or voluptuous or curvy or whatever you want to call it, they're all insinuating that these bodies aren't normal, that they exist outside of something. So you're only sort of further perpetuating your own marginalization by supporting something that says that you're not normal, but don't worry, we can help you. Now, has this always been society's view on fat people that it is a, a bad thing or something to feel ashamed of? No, it, it definitely hasn't always been something that uh, has been shamed. Historically, larger bodies have represented wealth or abundance um, and even good health. So, for example, in times of plague or other epidemics, the thin body signified a diseased body or it represented someone who couldn't afford food or who did a lot of manual, manual labor or other jobs that we would consider to have been of the lower class. Um But as the Western world became more industrialized and we developed cities and urban ways of life, the thin body has sort of become more desirable in the modern world. And then the fat body came to be a physical representation of our own anxieties regarding, you know, things like self-control in a time of excess and abundance. Um, From a class perspective, you know, as I said, fat people used to signify wealth, but today we would use fatness to identify those in the lower class because we assume that fat people are uneducated or perhaps they live in a food desert or, you know, they're unable to purchase organic food or make other lifestyle choices that we are being told would make us thin on a daily basis. It's also, I think, important to recognize that there's a lot of racial and economic factors. Um, you know, typically racialized bodies have been larger. And so fat shame is also a result of building or supporting whiteness and white supremacy because the racialized or larger body is seen as primitive or less desirable. It's interesting because, as you were saying, you know, back in history, we considered fat people to be wealthier, higher class, able to have access to abundance. But now fat people are almost exclusively viewed as unhealthy. Yeah. Is that is that true? Is there a correlation between uh, fatness and unhealthiness, an automatic correlation between the two? No, absolutely not. Um, but I do think you're right that uh, fat shame today is largely rooted in conceptions of health. It's funny because even still, in many cases, fatness has been proven to protect someone from disease or even extend life expectancies. But when we see fat people, we sort of see them as having a death sentence. 
And, you know, many people receive a diagnosis of fat from their doctors based on things like the BMI scale, but being fat in and of itself is not a disease. I think that too, especially in terms of this idea that fat people are unhealthy, for a lot of fat people, they're prescribed things in response to being diagnosed as obese that we would never recommend for a non-fat person. So my research is in reality TV, and I've spent a lot of time watching the show The Biggest Loser. And when you look at the things that we put fat people through in an effort to try to make them smaller, um, they're akin to violent behaviors or even torture. And it's a horrible reality because these intense weight weight loss measures have been proven to fail 95% of the time. And so what these practices are actually doing is they result in something called weight cycling, where the person in question will eventually gain back any weight that they've lost within two years. But then they also gain additional weight because different weight loss measures are devastating the body and their metabolism. They're inflicting incredible harm on the body. So what actually is unhealthy is how the medical system and different lifestyle industries like diet companies are trying to control fatness. Because more often than not, these practices don't work. And to be honest, I think that telling a fat person to just lose weight should be considered medical negligence because fat people, regardless of why they are fat, are still deserving of respect. And what other kinds of discriminations do do fat people face? Oh, man, a lot. (laughs) I think that fat people face intense social pressure to lose weight. Um, And because of the different microaggressions that fat people face on a daily basis, fat people are more likely to have mental illnesses. They're more likely to feel less safe or encouraged to leave their homes. uh, And they're less likely because of that to participate in everyday social activities. Um, Even structural things like arbitrary sizing restrictions on seating in restaurants or public transit, for example, exclude fat people from regular daily activities. It makes it literally impossible for fat people to participate in everyday things that a lot of non-fat people would take for granted. Layla, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. For more information on how changing the designs of our neighborhoods can help us get into better shape, how income affects our health, and more, check out the series Canada the Sick on globalnews.ca. This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. You can contact us via email, thisiswhy at curiouscast.ca or on Twitter at thisiswhy. We're a radio show as well as a podcast. To re-listen to this episode or any past episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's free and make sure you subscribe. Give us a rating as well as a review and let your friends know about the show too. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, I really want to encourage you to check out another podcast that I'm a part of. It's called When Life Gives You Parkinson's. I join Larry Gifford on his journey with Parkinson's disease. We explore exercise, family support, and community. When Life Gives You Parkinson's, now available.